Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at ycampidaho.org. Hello and welcome to On The Ledge podcast, the award-winning houseplant podcast hosted by me, Jane Perrone. If I come to your house, yes, I will be lifting up your pots and checking that everything is not root-bound or waterlogged. And yes, I do want to identify your mystery plant. In this episode, I'm going to be tackling the topic of peat and answering a question about a wayward anthurium. Thanks to Alex this week, who left a review on the CastBox podcast app, which made me laugh. Apparently, I'm sincere and humble. Uh, I think you've been listening to the wrong podcast, Alex. But Alex also said the show doesn't give that pumpkin spice latte slash Instagram stereotype vibe at all. Oh, pumpkin spice latte. Yuck. Um, (laughs) I'm much more of a nice cup of English breakfast tea. Thank you very much. But uh, thank you for leaving a review, Alex. And I really do love reading all the reviews, mostly positive, occasionally negative. It's all great feedback. So thank you to everybody who has left a review for On The Ledge on your pod app of choice. And thank you also to Nicole, who became a legend this week by signing up to the $5 tier of my Patreon. One of the great things about Patreon and the ads that I run on the show is they're enabling me to do more things to get on the ledge out to an ever wider and more diverse audience. And one of the things I'm working on right now is transcripts of the show. This is really important because accessibility is a real issue and I don't want anyone to feel like they can't get access to the show because it's not in a format that works for them. So very shortly, transcripts of the show will be going up at Jane Perone for every episode starting from episode 100 and going on from there if I can I will get back date and get as many transcripts up for earlier episodes but for the moment I'm aiming to get a transcript up for every new episode This will enable anyone who wants to look at exactly what I said to see the notes and the transcript should help people who are hard of hearing or unable to listen to the show for any other reason to get access to the same information as as everybody else. And I can only do this because of your support on Patreon and also the support of advertisers who sponsor the show. So thanks to everyone who supports the show, whether that's just simply listening to the ads or whether it's a donation made on Patreon. It all helps. And if you've got any other ideas about how to make the show more accessible, please let me know. I am always open to suggestions. On the ledge podcast at gmail.com is the best way of getting in touch. We're mixing things up this week by starting out with our question, which comes from Patsy. Patsy discovered the podcast last week and writes, I binge so completely that I caught up last night. 
My goodness, Patsy, you must be so sick of the sound of my voice. Anyway, she's been enjoying the show and she says that she found her first red spider mite affected plant today after listening to the episode on them. So she knew what to do. And that is great news because I love that when the podcast has a direct and immediate impact on how you're looking after your plants. That's what we like to hear. Patsy's question concerns what she calls a monstrous anthurium that she's had for three years and it's been growing and flowering non-stop from the wonderful emporium that is Lidl. Um, I don't know if you have this in America. I don't think you do, but it's a UK supermarket that's also, I think, in other parts of Europe. Well, they do sell house plants, but in my experience, you've got to get in there the, the day that they arrive because they tend to go downhill pretty fast. But you can occasionally snag a bargain. They did have fiddle leaf figs a while back. So on to Patsy's question. She's going to repot this anthurium, but she wants to know what to do about the massive stems slash aerial roots, which are almost a foot long. And she says, I'm sure that's meant to tell me something. I just don't know what. Is there something I can do about this or is this just the way they grow? Patsy, your anthurium looks in pretty good shape. The thing to remember about anthuriums is that these are epiphytic plants which generally anchor themselves to trees and the young seedlings can actually exhibit what's called scototropism, which is moving away from light. Now that sounds counterintuitive, but what these plants do is when they're young seedlings, they know somewhere in their DNA that they need to move towards a tree or some other anchorage to climb up towards the light. So the seedlings are scototropic, so they're moving towards something darker in the hope that it's a tree they can then anchor themselves to. And this gives us a hint about the aerial roots. So these plants will be anchoring themselves in tree bark, in clefts in trees, uh, on the whole and then growing up towards the light. Therefore, those aerial roots in their native environment are absolutely vital. In his native home in South America, your classic anthurium will definitely need those aerial roots. But does it need those aerial roots in your home in well, you don't actually say where you're from, Patsy. But anyway, I guess you've got two options. Do you cut the aerial roots off or do you leave them where they are and just repot with those aerial roots in place? The aerial roots are roots that are coming out of the stem. So if you can imagine the plants growing up a side of a tree trunk, well, obviously those aerial roots are going to go and anchor the plant. But if your plant is just growing in a regular pot, those aerial roots are just going to start to splay out. So what can you do with them? Well, if you are a fan of misting, then misting those aerial roots can really help to keep the plant in good shape. Being from South America, obviously it requires lots of air humidity. So that's one way it can take up moisture through using those aerial roots. If they're long enough to tuck them into the pot below, you can also do that because then they will go down into the soil and help to anchor the plant and also be drawing up nutrients and water as any root would do. It may also be worth considering giving this large anthurium some support of some kind or other because as you say, this, those stems are only just going to get longer. So a system of a few canes or a little bit of trellis work or a moss pole or two might just help to stop your anthurium getting uh, floppy as it gets larger, Patsy. I personally, I, I don't think you're going to kill the plant by cutting the aerial roots off, but I think it's probably better to leave them as they are 
a lot of plants from South America that live in tropical rainforest canopy areas display this activity, philodendrons being another prime example. And I just tend to leave those roots on. The other thing to bear in mind is that if you ever want to take cuttings of the plant, then those those sections with aerial roots attached can be detached and made into new plants. I mean, the plant is happy. It's clearly happy as it is. So don't mess with what's working well and keep those aerial roots intact. When a plant is doing what it does in its natural environment, then generally I put that down as a really good sign. When a plant is doing something that it doesn't do in its natural environment, like a cactus becoming etiolated and and leggy, um, that is when you need to start worrying. So the fact that this plant's got aerial roots can only be a good sign, Patsy. Patsy, let me know how your anthurium does when you repot. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, please send me an email on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. This week's show is the first part of an occasional series I'm going to be working on in the next year, all about sustainability and houseplants. This is a topic close to my heart and I hope it's close to yours too. Perhaps by the end of the series it will be, if it isn't right now. Unless you've been living inside a bag of potting mix for the past few years, you can't have failed to notice that things on this planet of ours, well, if I can use classic English understatement here, they're a bit tricky. We've finally woken up to the fact that all that plastic we're churning out isn't going anywhere in our lifetime or our kids' lifetime, or their kids' lifetime. You can't throw things away, because where's away anyway? And climate change is very, very real and very scary. In our cosy houseplant community, it's easy to feel as if nothing we do as individuals can help, but there are things you can do to make your houseplant habit more sustainable. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. We're going to be talking about things like plastic use through pots and fertilizer containers and all that kind of thing, about plant miles, where you source your plants from, and also about the growing media that we use. If you've got any other suggestions for sustainability topics we should tackle, please let me know. Today, the topic we're going to be tackling is peat. Most of you probably know that peat is a major component of a lot of the potting mixes that houseplants are grown in or that are sold in bags for you to use to repot your plants. But what is peat actually made from? It's basically decomposed moss that comes from acidic wetlands, boggy environments, and it takes millions of years to form. National Geographic has called peat the forgotten fossil fuel. Because once you've extracted peat from a bog, you may be able to restore it to wetland status, but you're not going to be able to harvest any more peat for a long time. Where is all the peat coming from? Well, if you're using peat in Europe, it's probably coming from bogs in Ireland, Germany, Finland, Sweden, a few other places. And in the US, most of the peat comes from Canada. 
There is an argument that, well, Canada's huge and is covered in peat bogs, so what's the problem? Well, my problem with peat is that it's not a new renewable resource. It's not something we can simply make more of. And why should we use it when there are so many other raw materials we can use to make our potting mixes which work just as well? And there's even more reasons to love peat bogs as they are. These environments are home to an incredible array of different plants, including our much-loved carnivorous plants. And there's increasing evidence that peat bogs can do a lot to help us mitigate climate change. They're huge stores of carbon. They also help to purify water and can also mitigate flooding too. So let's love our peat bogs and find every way possible we can to avoid using peat in our houseplant compost mixes. And an increasing number of plant people around the world are carrying out amazing research and finding ways of kicking peat out of the world of plant production. We're going to be talking to one of them today, Sean Higgs of Floralive Nursery here in the UK. He's been working on a peat-free potting mix formulation for carnivorous plants for the past 30 years. But first, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. For me, the hardest thing about learning a new language as an adult is finding the time in my week to get out to a language learning class. And that's where Babbel comes in. Babbel is the language learning app that gets you speaking a new language with confidence. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French and Polish. And Babbel is designed to get you speaking your new language with ease super quickly. The convenient lessons are just 10 to 15 minutes long and you can do them anywhere. You'll learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. And the good news is you can try Babbel for free with On The Ledge Podcast. Go to babbel.com or download the app and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com or download the app to try for free. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. So my name's Sean Higgs. Uh, I uh, run a carnivorous plant nursery called Floralive in the UK and I've been growing carnivorous plants for just over 40 years and 30 of those have been entirely peat free um, and presently I believe we're the only uh, nursery in, in the world that grows multiple genera of carnivorous plants totally peat free. There are other uh, growers who are experimenting with peat free, some who've had some success, some who haven't and there are nurseries in other parts of the world, for instance Sri Lanka, who grow specific genera um, in a um, type of peat-free medium simply because they're unable to source peat in that area of the world. Um, and at the moment, it's a, it's a growing trend. What was it 30 years ago that made you make that change? Because back then, I, I mean, peat really was j- just an, an inverted commas normal thing to do. It was. And I, I think fundamentally, uh, what sort of what prompted it from my point of view was uh, growing carnivorous plants as a young lad, uh, I found it very, very hypocritical that in order to grow them successfully, you had to fundamentally dig up <laughs> the natural environment that they grew in. So it was somewhat counterproductive and, and it just it created a spark in my head, to be honest with you. And 
traveling around on, on various sort of uh, trips and, and excursions talking to people back then um i came across a farmer in a, in a part of wales where there's a very very large bog which had been significantly drained in the 60s um and we were discussing that and and he was sort of saying some of the different t- telling me about some of the differences that had made to the local environment etc etc and this is back end of the, the the 70s something like that early 80s and it really struck a chord with me and i didn't believe at that point in time that it was that it should be necessary to dig up peat bogs drain them and dig them up in order to grow plants but specifically carnivorous plants at that point in time so i i decided <laughs> uh, somebody needed to do something about it so from that point onwards really i set about trying to find an alternative well i think you're a bit of a visionary in this area by the sound of it because back then lots of other carnivorous plant growers in the carnivorous plant community were kind of giving you the side eye and wondering what on earth you were going on about yeah it was it was quite low key to start with and obviously because there, there, there was a tremendous amount of, of research that had to be done and trialing and trying to source different materials to try the plants in and obviously until there's a a reasonable degree of success you don't sort of go out and shout about that um of course back then although there was a certain amount of popularity with carnivorous plants they they hadn't reached the level of popularity that that they have today for instance and there wasn't an awful lot known about how to grow them that you hadn't got the variety of, of material available that there is today and there was practically no literature whatsoever the first time i i had a venus flytrap there were no growing instructions with it it was just a plant with a with a photographic poster and it took two years of repeated attempts to try and grow one successfully and, and so realistically it, it wasn't until probably oh the, the, the mid to late 90s before uh, I sort of revealed what I'd been up to and that I'd got something that worked to a degree. And there was there was interest, but only amongst the, the, the carnivorous plant community. I would imagine that you don't want to give away your exact formulation <laughs> because this is something that's gone, so much work's gone into. But tell me more generally, what kind of uh, qualities does a good carnivorous plant compost does is it to do with texture is it to do obviously it's to do with ph i'd imagine nutrients yes it can vary uh i think collectively they're known as bog plants which is which is true for the majority so a, a majority of them will grow in bogs and marshes in different places around the world um but fundamentally environments where the, the ground that they grow in is, is relatively free of nutrients, so which is basically why they've been evolved into carnivory, so that they can supplement their, their, their nutrition because there isn't any nutrition in the ground. Uh, boggy soils obviously um, retain an awful lot of water, so anything that you're going to use to grow them in needs to have that as an attribute and needs to be relatively free or totally free of nutrients and, and and things like that so those are the two fundamentals and depending on which um which category of plants you're growing for instance most of them sit in the sort of okay you can you can grow them in a pot in a plant in a plant pot sitting in the saucer of water during the growing season and that's fine 
other ones are a little bit more tricky. Nepenthes, for instance, um, that grow in, in, in Borneo and places like that in rainforest environments, then they prefer to be watered from above and they don't like their roots sitting in water. So to, to, to formulate something that is a coverall is extremely difficult. And um, when, when, when I first came up with something which I considered was probably going to be suitable, uh, what I did was I had several different formulations which were applicable to different genres of plants that required slightly different watering conditions. And that's how it all started, to be honest with you. From there, once that was achieved, the objective became to try and simplify that because I think f for people that the buying public, somebody out in a, in a garden centre who wants to buy a, gar a carnivorous plant or buy some carnivorous plant compost, for instance, um, they want simplicity. They don't want to have to buy three or four different bags of, of different things to grow a range of plants. It's easier if they've got something that is a, a coverall, if you like. And so that, that was the next sort of agenda. Um, and it took another six or seven years to achieve that. Um, and what we have now in that product is something that can fundamentally be used for all carnivorous plants, um, provided you vary the way that you water it. Just on the, the peat-free issue, um, obviously lots of listeners are concerned about this topic and want to do the right thing. Obviously, if they're in the UK, um, they can order uh, your peat-free carnivorous plant mix and which is wonderful is this movement going forward in other countries are there other places in the world where people are doing similar work to you there are now yes originally obviously there weren't because it, it wasn't fully understood i don't think by society that peat was an issue now there are people in, in in practically every country i think experimenting continually with with peat free to to achieve the same kind of thing that we've done and give them an, an opportunity to grow these plants uh peat free and uh, i think it's probably safe to say that realistically that's exclusively people within the carnivorous plant community so you know hobbyists and and, and people that have been growing them for a while then there are people in America, I know we spoke about America, there are people over there that, that are trying to find ways to grow them peat-free. Um, but it's a very, very small percentage in the UK. There's, there's a grower in uh, Shropshire who grows Saracenia predominantly, uh, and he holds a national collection of Saracenia. He has now developed a peat-free mix that he uses for all his Saracenia, and that works very well. Um, and, and other people are having success with that as well. And you, you can buy the constituents to make that up, um, which come from, I think, from, if I'm right in saying, I think he uses a Malcourt base, a, a product that Malcourt do, um, and he mixes it with a couple of other constituents. Um, and those kind of things are freely available in, in sort of uh, in the UK market. But... I think it's it's a trend now that there is more urgency amongst everybody to grow everything, not just carnivorous plants, but everything peat free. And it, it, it is vitally important that we do that. So obviously that spills over into carnivory 
and a lot of people are trying all sorts of different ways to find what works for them and i think that's a key point is that while some people have had success then in their own environment the way they grow their plants where they grow their plants and how they grow their plants it doesn't necessarily follow that that will work for everybody else because environments that people use are different so that, that's another tricky aspect of designing a growing media for instance i think um but yeah it's it's definitely a trend and it it will become more visible as time goes on and without revealing your secrets what what are the what are the possible uh raw materials for making a good peat-free carnivorous plant compost are there, are there i imagine there are a lot of different options are things like coir and um garden waste that's been reconstituted are things like that some of the options that you that might be in the mix when somebody's putting together uh, a possible uh, potting mix for carnivorous plants potentially i think gar- garden waste is a tricky one because it can vary considerably that there are so many different things that you could lump under that banner that it's it's probably not advisable to, to sort of to, to recommend people go down that route things like coir yes there's been a reasonable amount of success with coir but again coir can vary so the sources that coir comes from um typically india and sri lanka have a vast stores of coir which is a waste product from the, the, the coconut industry um but a lot of those sit next to saltwater lakes so the the, the substance itself um leaches the the salts and the salts would be fatal to carnivorous plants so some coir you can buy um is is completely free of salt and people have used that to some good effect at times but it, it's again it's very much a trial and error situation um other people would tell you never touch coir with a barge pole so it's very subjective really barks again there there are all sorts of different barks you can buy um some people have used bark with success and as i said the uh, mike king the chap in uh, in shropshire who uh, who grows the saracenias he uses a bark from melcourt and he swears i think he's been he's been trialing that for five six seven years something like that um and he has a national national collection of thousands probably six seven thousand plants something like that potted in a mix that is based on on, on a melcourt bark um but that Mel- melcourt bark that he uses typically it's it's an acid uh, medium with very very low nutrients no fertilizers or anything like that added to it so it's fundamentally inert um and once you've got that it's really it's a question of making sure that the that the porosity of the material is okay that the water uptake is good enough and and that the the air the the roots in the, for the for the plants can have enough air to grow in so again it's, it's trial and error and i think as time goes by we will see a lot more variations on that kind of theme where one person is using it with this uh, constituent somebody else is using it with a different constituent to, to slightly different formulation and everybody will say mine works mine works mine works so that there is there, there is some experimentation that can be done but i wouldn't recommend that anybody does it unless they have a lot of spare plants to try with because if you've got one prize plant and you stick it in something and it doesn't work you're not going to be very happy (laughs) 
I mean, I, I, you've done all the hard work, right? I think I'd much rather just buy your stuff and know that it's going to work after 30 years of trying than trying to formulate my own. But I know there are people out there who want to do all this stuff themselves. So it's interesting to experiment. But I think probably for me personally, I shall just be ordering some of your, your compost. This is, this is the thing. It's, imp- it's important that people have a choice. And obviously our, our product is there and the research is behind it and the trials um, and it's been on the market now since 1998 and thousands of people have used it. Um, so it works and that works for a lot of people because it's a very simple solution. It's, it's a convenience product that people can buy and use out of the bag. Other people would see it as, exp- as an expensive solution. And it depends how you compare it, because if you compare it against a bag of, I don't know, you can buy a peat-based carnivorous plant compost in a garden centre, for instance. And if you compare our product to that, there's there's no difference in price whatsoever. But if you compare it to somebody who buys a big bale of moss peat and a big bag of perlite and, and a big bag of sand and mixes their own at home, then ours is very, very expensive. But equally, so is the peat-free, so is the peat base mix so uh, our product suits some people but not everybody um and that's fine because for the people that 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 are looking for that convenience it's there and it's available um but there are obviously other ways of doing it however we we won't endorse using peat in any way shape or form not just for carnivorous plants but for any plant at all that there is absolutely no need to use peat nowadays you found that useful and inspirational thanks sean and if you're in the uk and want to get your hands on some of sean's special carnivorous plant potting mix which goes under the name thrive sean's been kind enough to offer a discount code if you enter on dash v dash ledge in capitals uh, when you check out then you'll get a 20% discount on your final total not including shipping and orders over 45 pounds automatically qualify for free shipping anyway the code's valid from today until the 31st of july so you've got plenty of time to get your orders in you'll find the floralive website at floralive.co.uk and sean's on twitter as at floralive uk if you've missed any of that information do go over to the website jadeperone.com where you can find all the links for Sean and loads of background information on the peat-free movement, the importance of peat bogs and so on. If you've been inspired, you're probably wondering what you can do where you live to try to break your dependence on peat in the garden and in your indoor gardening life. Well, the first thing I'd say is always read the packet when you go to buy potting mix. All UK potting mixes should have somewhere stated on the packaging material how much peat is contained in them. It's not always easy to find, but it should be there. And if it's not there, then ask the manufacturers for the information. These companies need to start giving out information about peat and putting pressure on these companies by making them aware this is something that we as consumers care about is a great step forward. If you're in the UK, there are an increasing range of suppliers of peat-free potting mixes. Surprisingly, as far as I know, apart from Floralive's carnivorous plant mix there aren't any general houseplant potting mixes that are peat free i do know that one of the companies who do offer peat free is working on one which is exciting 
But I found that if you find any peat-free multipurpose and add, depending on the kind of plant you're growing, either some finely milled bark or some perlite or some vermiculite, either to improve drainage or to improve water retention, then usually you can come up with a good mix for any houseplant without having to resort to peat. I've often recommended using John Innes number two. In the past, this does contain peat, but if you're in the UK and you can get hold of it, there's a wonderful product by the company Melcourt that Sean Higgs was talking about called Silver Grow All-Purpose Peat Free with added John Innes. And this is what I'm experimenting with at the moment for my houseplants. Other options in the UK include Fertile Fibre, which is based on coconut fibre or coir, Lakeland Gold from Dalefoot, which is made from bracken and sheep's wool and is absolutely amazing. I would highly recommend that if you can get your hands on it. If you can't find any peat-free compost at your local garden centre, then do speak to the staff and request that this is added on to their offering. It's only by us customers coming forward and asking for what we want that we're going to get progress on this. And I have heard anecdotally that lots of garden centres say, well, we don't stock it because nobody asked for it. So come on, people step up and ask for peat free and i'd love to know what you think about this topic whether you're already using peat free or struggling to find peat free compost for your house plants where you live do let me know and i will try to put together a blog post on peat free resources for my website so please do let me know that information and i can feed it into that piece before i go oh, this isn't peat related whatsoever but i did talk to Sean Higgs about a carnivorous plant that I don't think has ever come up in an episode of On The Ledge and I was curious about it and I knew you would be too. So here's a little segment of chat with Sean about, you. I can't even say, <laughs> bladderwort, let's call it bladderwort, maybe I'll try again, utricularia which is a genus of carnivorous plants that works in very mysterious ways. Here's Sean talking about the way this plant operates and why it actually makes a really nice house plant. Well, they don't have roots for a start. So they have on the surface of the, of the growing medium or above the surface, they will have typically very small leaves, sometimes grass-like, and they're very inconspicuous until they flower. And I think it's probably fair to say that the majority of people that grow them grow them because a lot of them have these really, really um, vivid orchid-like flowers and they're really, really pretty. Some of them are very, very tiny, but, but others aren't. But the trapping mechanism is underground. Now, some of them grow in water and some of them will grow in um, saturated soils and... The, the trapping mechanism is basically a very, very tiny, small trap. And the, I mean, the largest one that you could find would be, I don't know, half a centimetre, something like that. Typically much, much smaller than that. And even if you could see them, if you if you turn a pot full out, you can see these little bladders all over the compost. But you, you wouldn't be able to see the trapping operation because they move faster than the, eye, the, the, the human eye can detect. Um, and it's based on a vacuum. There's a vacuum inside each trap and on the perimeter of each trap are some trigger hairs and when a, a, um, a, a, a little insect or a protozoa or a, a daphnia or something of that nature swims past and touches the triggers, it um, releases the vacuum and the prey gets sucked inside the bladder 
which then gradually reforms the vacuum and in doing so the prey dies and it absorbs the resulting nutriment. They're clever things, aren't they? I really continue to have my mind blown by uh, carnivorous plants. They're just... <laughs> they're basically, they're, bladderworts are very, very easy to grow um, in, in a light, in a light um, windowsill or something like that or in a greenhouse. And the flowers on, on most of them are really worth seeing, even if they're only small ones. You get such a, an array of flowers that come up during the summertime. They're, 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 they're pretty, I think is the best word. It's, it's a pretty little display. all for on the ledge this week i'll be back next friday and remember sometimes people are like bladderworts it's all going on under the surface take care bye Music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, Words Fall Apart by Josh Woodward, An Instrument the Boy Called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and Plantation by Jason Shaw, all licensed under Creative Commons. And the ad music was Whistling Rufus by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra, all licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs>